Grab a Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 1 as we begin a new book this morning. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Bud has Bibles. If you're visiting with us, welcome. Hope that you can stay for our Thanksgiving feast following this service. You know how some songs are just bring you back to a place, to a or to a time, and, and Joy to Be is, is, I think, will always be a special song to me. Because if you recall, the, the guys from Citizens wrote that in the middle of the pandemic, in the middle of COVID and 2020 and everything that it was, they reminded us that God is our joy and our constancy. And that just, I, I don't think that I, I will ever not be, be brought back to that place of clinging to God um, during a time of such uncertainty. Anyway, Ephesians 1. Just going to glance at a few verses this morning. Really, today is going to be an introduction. It's going to be a transition, like Rob said at the beginning of service, from where we left off in Acts to the next chapter of Paul's life, under house arrest in Rome, writing the prison epistles. It's good to be back, by the way, and, and, and I wanted to say thank you to everyone who made it possible for Ann and I to get away last week, um, and I need to reach out and thank Pastor Ryan for filling in. Isn't he a great teacher? He, he's, he's the teacher I want to be when I grow up, um, which, which isn't surprising if you think about who his parents are. You know, Robbie and Diane are going to have that kid, and, and the mentors that he had, Mark Fry um, down in Ark City, Pastor Joe. Um, in, in, in Wellington. Pastor Rick, he spent some time as the youth pastor up in Johnson County, so had wonderful people pouring into him as well. But it was great, great to get away. It was a wonderful time. We also had some melancholy moments, I'll be honest. Um, I, I, I think you could call them that, melancholy sorts of moments on the trip. Um, for, for, for those of you who don't know, every seven years or so, sort of like a Sabbath thing, Ann and I save and we do some side jobs and we dig under the sofa cushions and we take a really big vacation. Seven years ago, we went to Israel and this year for our 25th anniversary, we went to Hawaii for the first time. And it was, it was a blessing, to, a huge blessing to be able to do that. But we also found ourselves thinking a little bit about Anne's parents who really wanted to do that and never got a chance to. Anne's parents, just by way of background, both worked and they both worked a lot. Mom was a NICU nurse taking care of the preemies and, and the little ones. Her dad worked in commercial real estate and the whole time they were working and working and working and raising four kids, they told each other over and over. It was sort of their, their, their mantra, the thing that kept them going. When we retire, we're going to travel. When we retire, we're going to go places. We're going to go here, we're going to go there, we're going to see this, we're going to visit. And they, they had all kinds of plans, but as a lot of you know, their, their health, the health issues for both of them intervened, and they never got that opportunity. Anne's mom ended up with Parkinson's, her dad with emphysema, and neither one of them had the retirement that they wanted, the retirement that for, for decades they envisioned. Anne's dad actually passed away shortly after we were married, and we, we moved up the date of our marriage. Um, so we, we, when it became clear he wasn't going to make it to our wedding date, we, we kind of hurried things up, and we got married in her parents' living room so he could be there. We, we wanted to reschedule the whole thing, and that's where he got stubborn because he was a 
man of his generation and he said, you're not going to reschedule your wedding just because I smoke two packs of cigarettes a day for 40 years. Um, so that was, that was the, the compromise is, is, is we got married in their living room and then at a public celebration. Anyway, after, after he passed, Ann's mom, Betty, moved into an assisted living com uh, community. The original plan was that they were going to move in there together, and it was one of those progressive things where you start off with, with minimal care, and then as you need more, they provide more. And Well, she ended up moving in there alone and hated it. Abs hated everything about it. Hated that she was the youngest person there, she was there not because she was old, but because she had Parkinson's. She hated that she was there without her husband. Hated that she had to move from a house that she loved. The, the first house her parents, Anne's parents, ever had, they, they loved, they outgrew it when they had four kids, but they always said, okay, when, when we're empty nesters and the kids are out of the house, we're going to move back there. And sure enough, when the last kid moved out of the house, they went to the family that was living there and said, how much will it take for you to move? And then they bought the house back, and this was their, their, their dream home. And she, she couldn't live there anymore. And she hated that. She hated that she wasn't living the life that she and her husband planned out. If, 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 if you know Anne, you know that she's a planner? Kind of? A little bit? Yeah, mom is who she got it from. And I'll tell you, if, if Anne is single A ball <laughs> compared to her mom, her mom is, was big leagues planning. And imagine someone who, who, who plans the work and works the plan and finds herself living a life that, that had nothing to do with the plan. And, and in reality, she'd been off plan. Her life had been off script for years. The script that she imagined for herself, the script that, that she had in her head. Anne will actually tell you, I never met her mother. Because even before the Parkinson's was diagnosed and even before Harlan was on 24-hour oxygen, Betty lost her youngest son, Anne's brother. He, he lost his battle to mental illness and took his own life. And, and part of Betty, and it, it's a cliche, but it's, 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 it's absolutely true. Part of Betty died that, that day as well. Her, her joy died. Because in her mind, doctors were supposed to be able to heal patients. Parents weren't supposed to bury their children. And life wasn't supposed to be like this. By the time I knew her, there was... Not much, if any, joy in her life. She, she was a believer, but she couldn't get past the feeling that God had horribly, repeatedly, just dramatically disappointed her. In her mind, God had let her down. and it, So much so that that became her identity. That was her central, defining truth. That she didn't, that she couldn't, that she... So, so much so she, she couldn't see the joy and the opportunities and the possibilities that God was bringing into her life. Her, 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 her adult children rotated back into town, moving back just to be with her, just to spend time with her from, from all around the country. They, they came back to their hometown. Grandchildren. Friends. Betty had friends like nobody I know. Some of the most loyal, faithful, devoted friends. And, and, and she pushed them away. And she pushed Jesus away. Because, because the picture in her mind of what her life was supposed to be completely eclipsed the relationships and the love and the family and the ministry that was right in front of her. Like I said, got, got a little melancholy thinking about all of that, and now I'm bringing you down too. <laughs> but 
it, it jumps off the page thinking about that last week while, while reading the book of Ephesians and getting ready to embark on this study. It, it just jumps off the page. What a different choice Paul makes. The choice we see him making as we open the letter together. Ephesians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As he writes this, Paul is where we left him two weeks ago at the end of Acts 28. He's under house arrest in Rome. He's awaiting trial, awaiting a hearing before Nero. He's appealed to Nero. He's waiting for that to happen. And he's using that time to, among other things, write what we call the prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, which, which really is a cover letter, we believe, to Colossians. We don't know in what order Paul wrote them. There's, scholars have reasons for speculating this or that, but that's all it is. It's speculation. And the order in which they appear in the Bible doesn't tell us anything. We've, we've talked before about why the books of the Bible are in the order they're in. When we get to Paul's letters, these Two categories of letters, letters to churches, letters to individuals. And within each category, the letters are arranged from longest to shortest. So the longest letter to a church is the one we just finished, the letter to the Romans, followed by 1 Corinthians, followed by 2 Corinthians, followed by Galatians, which was written before any of them. So they're not remotely in chronological order. And after those letters, we get to the personal letters, 1 Timothy, then 2 Timothy, which is the last of all of Paul's letters, and then Titus and Philemon, from longest to shortest, because that, in days gone by, was helped, helped the printers print the Bible. Point being, Ephesians may or may not have been the first of the prison epistles to be written, but since we don't know, no reason not to take it first. And, and, and as we dive in, even, even where we are, just two verses in, it strikes me. It, it, ser it seriously overwhelms me to realize how easy it would have been for Paul to not even bother, for Paul to not even begin to write this book. Ephesians is a deep letter, if you've ever, if you've ever looked at it. I remember when my pastor taught through it, six chapters took us a little bit more than two years. And, and at times it felt like we were rushing. That's how deep it is. Because you got three chapters of doctrine. You got predestination and purpose and power and grace. And then there's three chapters of application. There's church and the one anotherness of the body and marriage and the armor of God. And, and it's all, it's, it's depth and it's richness treated with, with, with gentleness. Ephesians 4.15, Paul says, speak the truth in love. And he does, verse over verse. Here's this really deep, heavy weighty, important thing, just delivered with grace. Every time I read it, I'm, I'm struck by the thought that must have gone into this, the, the prayer, the care with which he articulates himself. But again, reading, it, reading through it last week, I'm struck by how easy it would have been for Paul to just not because just like my mother-in-law, Paul's life, by the time he gets to this point, 60 AD, give or take, his life wasn't going remotely according to plan. And it hadn't been for some time, if you think about it. When Paul writes Ephesians, he's probably my age. He's probably mid to late 50s. He's been in ministry for half his life. 
And not many of those 28 plus or minus years had gone according to plan. He catalogs some of, not all, but some of the unexpected developments to date in 2 Corinthians 11. Beaten, robbed, shipwrecked, run out of town, sleepless, starved, stoned. And then since then, I mean, for the last three, four, five years, depending on exactly when during his two years in Rome he wrote this, for the last three, four, five years, he's been largely out of circulation. First, first in confinement in Caesarea, and then instead of traveling to Spain the way that he wanted to, he's in confinement in Rome. How easy it would have been for Paul to say, I don't think so, God. If these, if these are the cards you're going to keep dealing me, I, I don't want to play. I fold. I'm out. Someone else can have my chair. This isn't the ministry I planned. It's not the ministry that I wanted. I'm done. Wake me up when it's time for the rapture. But what did we just read? How did Paul introduce himself? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul never stopped believing, as far as we can tell, which means he never stopped believing for very long that he was where he was because it's where God put him. He says, I'm an apostle. What's an apostle? Someone who is sent. I am where I am because this is where God sent me. Because this is where God wants to use me. And because he did believe that, because he was utterly, deeply, persistently convinced of that, the two years that Paul spends under house arrest at Rome, I think, are, are arguably as productive as any two years of his ministry. I think the two years that Paul spends in Rome are as fruitful as any two years of his life. Side note, why only two years? What happened? Why was he two, there for two years and then he wasn't there anymore? A, a couple possibilities. Either he finally gets his hearing before Nero and Nero agrees with Agrippa, yeah, there's, there's no reason to hold you, I don't know what this is all about, and lets him go. Because this is before Nero be, decides he hates Christians and becomes, begins persecuting the church. Or, another possibility, two years passes, no accusers have shown up. No one from Jerusalem has made it to Rome to say, this is why you need to kill this guy. And under Roman law, if, if no one showed up in two years, a statute of limitations kind of a thing, the, the accused would be released. And there's, there's, there's arguments for both scenarios, and we can talk about it when we get there. But, but think about what Paul accomplished while he was there. His two years in Rome, think about the writing ministry. I, 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 I wouldn't want to be a Christ follower without Ephesians to guide me and, and Philippians to encourage me and Colossians to clarify things for me. Where would we be if Paul hadn't had that uninterrupted time to study and ponder and pray over these letters? Prayer. Think about prayer ministry. We've known, Every letter that Paul writes, he, he talks about the conspicuous place that prayer occupied in his life. This, this, is, this season is no different. Look down to verse 16. Verse 15, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And then he goes on to pray for another half a dozen verses. His prayer life wasn't diminished during captivity. I think, it was, I think it was increased. Maybe I just think that because I spent most of yesterday on an airplane. 
And I, I never pray as much as when I'm on an airplane because I'm a big guy and there's small seats and you're cramped in and there's not a lot else to do. <laughs> Paul in captivity, I think, prayed a lot. I think he prayed deeply and persistently and powerfully. Writing ministry, prayer ministry. We know he had a preaching and teaching ministry. End of Acts 28, we read that Paul was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ. Seekers and skeptics and cynics, they're coming out to hear Paul. People on fire for Jesus, they're coming out to hear Paul. And we know that it had an impact. How do we know? Flip over a couple pages to Philippians chapter 1. Very next book of the Bible, Philippians chapter 1. Look down at verse 12. I want you to know, brethren... Philippians 1.12, that the things which happened to me have all actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What did he just say? He just said that through his witness, the whole palace guard got saved. And other believers watching this happen are becoming that much more bold to share their faith within their spheres of influence. You know, Paul there is, is, is chained to at least some guards in rotation assigned to, to keep him in the house that, that he was renting. And as they, as they rotated in, Paul sharing the gospel with all of them. Some of them get saved. They go back and share with others. He says, yeah, the whole palace guard got saved. And others are watching this and, 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 and they're speaking the gospel because they're reminded that that's what we're here to do. And then flip a couple more pages, go to Philippians 4.21. Philippians 4, verse 21. The brethren who are with me, Paul wrapping up his letter, greet you, all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. So the gospel has penetrated Nero's palace. We don't know if this is his family or servants or both, but... Paul's being used. Paul's evangelizing. And he's, he's writing, he's praying, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's mentoring, he's making disciples. How do we know? Luke and Aristarchus are the guys who are with him at the beginning, but we see later as Paul talks about, hey, this person greets you and I'm sending this guy to you and this person is with me. Timothy's with him in Philippians and Colossians both. Timothy is his is, is true son in the faith. Mark, John Mark, who was his assistant with, with Barnabas on his first missions journey, and then they, 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 they separate. Mark is reconciled with him. He's doing, back doing ministry with, with Paul. Onesimus, one of my favorite characters in Scripture, runaway slave who gets saved, and Paul sends him back to Philemon. Paul's making disciples. Even, even in captivity, he's training up believers. That's what we're here to do, all of us. As you are going, Jesus says, make disciples. I had lunch with a pastor friend not long ago. And he says to me, so is your, is your church getting bigger? I said, I didn't think that was the goal. He got a little annoyed because that's not what I meant. And I knew that wasn't what he meant. I was just being a jerk. But you know, he was making conversation. I was being annoying. But, 
But, but at the same time, ask any pastor worth their salt. Would you rather have a church of 2,000 nominal believers or 10 on-fire Christ followers? 10 out of 10 are going to pick the 10. And if you think about it, that's the church that Paul had. I, I don't know if he literally had 10 people. We don't, we don't know numerically. But no one was visiting Paul because they had nothing better to do. No one was, was coming to hear Paul just because that's what you did at the same time every week. You had to go out of your way to hear Paul. It was probably a little risky to, to go visit Paul. You had to seek him out. You had to work for it. You had to sacrifice for it. And I bet that Paul loved every minute of it. Getting to teach people who want to be there, that's, that's every pastor's dream. You know, Sunday mornings, you look around most churches. Last Sunday morning, Ann and I were at Calvary Chapel North Shore in, in, in Kauai. And, and we saw the same three groups that you see in most churches. Not this church, but most churches. Sunday morning, you look around, there are prisoners. People who don't want to be there, but someone dragged them. It was, it was, it was either, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dad and you're going because I say so. Or... Okay, if you want me to work on your car, you've got to come to church with me. There's some sort of quid pro quo. But you've got, you got prisoners who don't really want to be here, but they're coerced. You've got vacationers because, because being here is kind of chill. You just have to, you know, listen to Patrick for a while. But, hey, it's better than raking leaves in the rain. Vacationers who are here because it's better than whatever's on the honeydew list. And then the third category, adventurers. And you can tell the adventurers because they've got a Bible and they've got a pen and they've got a notebook and they're leaning forward. Paul might have had some prisoners. You know, the, the guard who was chained to him was Paul's prisoner. He had to listen to Paul. He didn't have a choice. But Paul didn't have any vacationers. There was no one talking to Paul because they didn't have anything better to do. No vacationers, maybe a few prisoners, but most of Paul's ministry was to adventurers. And it was fruitful ministry. Why? Because Paul didn't see himself as a prisoner. Even in chains, he saw himself as an adventurer. Okay, God, this wasn't what I had in mind, but this is what you had in mind. What do you have in mind, God? What are we doing here? What, what's, what's the adventure? Paul avoided the trap that so many of us fall into, the trap that my mother-in-law fell into. The trap of getting so fixated on a picture of what we hoped and wanted and expected life to be, we don't see the life and the family and the ministry and the relationships and the opportunities that are right in front of us that God has blessed us with. Paul avoids that trap, steps right by it. And he avoids another trap as well. As he, as he puts pen to paper and starts this letter, notice there's, there's no trace of frustration or bitterness or disappointment. There's, there's no tone of, of, of sadness that he has to write this letter, that the church of Ephesus is in a place where they need this letter. And, and it would have been understandable if Paul had been a little bummed writing to them. What do we know about Paul's history with Ephesus? We know he spent more than two years there, maybe as long as three years there. We get that from Acts 19. 
the longest Paul had spent anywhere since he was in Tarsus. And during the, that two years, three months at a minimum, maybe longer, he preached the gospel, he did miracles to authenticate the gospel, ran a school of ministry, sent out missionaries, sent out church planners. By the time he left, Acts 19.10, by the time he left, all of what we would call Turkey, the entire province of Asia, had heard the gospel. That's how fruitful the ministry was. It was cooking while Paul was there. But just a year later, we read in Acts 20, he's warning the elders of the Ephesian church, hey, savage wolves are going to creep in trying to, trying to devour the flock. False shepherds are going to be raised up within to corrupt the flock. That's almost certainly why Paul sends Timothy there a few years later to take over the church, to set the church in order, to appoint new elders. But even that doesn't completely remedy things. Church tradition tells us sometime after Timothy shepherded the church, the Apostle John came and shepherded Ephesus. That's tradition. We don't know that for a fact. What we know for a fact is sometime after that, Jesus wrote a letter to the church of Ephesus. It's the first of the seven letters to seven churches that Jesus writes. We have them in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And he says to Ephesus, you're doing a lot of things well. You're getting a lot of things right. One small problem, you've left your first love. This church of Ephesus that had so many advantages also had some really profound struggles. And obviously not all of that had happened by the time Paul was writing his letter. A lot of that was still in the future. But from Acts 20, we know that Paul clearly had some supernatural insight word of knowledge, some sort of prophetic glimpse that the church of Ephesus was going to go through some really heavy stuff. Paul probably didn't know it all. He clearly knew some of it. And clearly, based on the letter that we have, he's not, he's, he's not discouraged. He's saying, okay, this isn't what I hoped would happen. This isn't what I, I, I wanted the church in Ephesus to be, but this is the church that is. And these are the people that are, and I need to love the people that they are in the place that they are, imperfect as they are. See, that's another trap Paul avoids. First trap is staring so hard at the picture you have in your head of the life that you thought you wanted, the life that you had planned out. You don't see the blessings that you have, the life, the people, the, the, the opportunities. But the second trap is to stare so hard at the life that you do have all you can see is all of the ways it falls short. Not, not even short of what you wanted, but short of what it could be. You stare so hard, all you see are the faults and the failures and the shortcomings and the disappointments. The people you find yourself with, the place that you find yourself in, the church that you find yourself a part of. You look at everything we know about Ephesus. Paul could have fallen into that trap really easily. He could have thought about how hard he tried with them, how hard he prayed for them, the time that he spent with them, how deeply he cared for them. And he could have said, you know what? You're, you're just not worth it. If you're not going to try harder than this, I'm out. You're carnal. You're compromising. In every way, you're half a loaf. I'm going to keep... I'm not going to keep investing. I'm, I'll keep going through the motions, but you're not going to have my passion. Not anymore. You've seen that happen, Right? Maybe you've seen that happen in ministry. I know you've seen it in your workplace. People retiring in place. First time I heard the term, somebody, somebody said, oh, Rip Donald. What do you mean, Rip Donald? Rip. 
He's retired in place. He's still showing up. He's still, he's still collecting a check, but he's not doing the job anymore. One of the things I tried to do this week is, is, is spend some time thinking about people who helped me along the way. You know, November and Thanksgiving and thankfulness. And, 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 and the, I, two weeks ago, I mentioned the high school teacher who went home to the Lord who really had an impact on me. And it's just, it, it all kind of conspires to make me remember how short life is and how, how precious the moments are that we get to, to, to share Jesus with people but also how important it is to take those moments to, to be grateful to people. One of the people I found myself thinking about this week is a guy I called Marcus. It's not his name, but the people who know, know, and the people who don't know, don't need to know. Marcus was a guy that from, from my, my earliest days as an intern back in New Jersey, he took an interest in me. He'd get off work at, at 3 o'clock, and he'd come by the church, and he'd come find me. Hey, tell me more about your story. Tell me how you got here. And, and he'd say, hey, I've been part of this church from the beginning. I've been part of this church for 20 years. Ask, ask me anything. You know, I, I know how things work. I, I, and, and, oh, I see what you're trying to do. And, oh, it's so encouraging. You're such a breath of fresh air. And, and he'd pray for me. He was, he was a, he was a Barnabas. He was an encourager. Except after a while, the conversation changed. Or, or maybe my perception of it, my understanding, my, my recognition. Because the encouragement was still there, that was always there. But, but I, I, I began to notice this undercurrent of, of criticism, of discontentment. It was subtle, but, but, but then it became more overt, or, or I just got more attenuated to it. But, and, and that criticism of me, just everyone around me. Don't you think the pastor should be more like this? Don't you think the men's ministry should be more like that? Don't you think we should focus more attention on this area, not that area? Did you agree with this decision? Would you have made that decision? And, and, and don't get me wrong. This is me talking, don't get me wrong. There's a place for prayer and discussion and evaluation and, and, and real scrutiny of everything we do as a church, everything Jesus did, he did well. We want to do things well. We want to do things as unto the Lord. The thing about my friend Marcus, though, is every time a discussion about, hey, how do we solve this problem? How do we shore up this deficiency? How do we, how do we turn this? Or every time that discussion would happen, he'd run the other way. You don't agree with it? Well, let, let's go talk to the pastor. Because I think you're making up. No, it's not worth it. You, 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 don't, you don't think we're doing outreach right. Come to the outreach meeting. We don't have all the good ideas. Oh, no, it's, you're going to do what you're going to do. You don't like the men's ministry. Let's go have lunch with the men's ministry leaders. Maybe we are stuck in a rut. We keep doing the same old classes. Let's you and me sit down and plan a class together. Nah, it won't change. Nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to make a difference. And the, the thing is, he had some really good ideas. You've been walking with the Lord a long time. And, and, and he, I think there was a real anointing of wisdom upon him. But for whatever reason, by the time I met him, he was so preoccupied and so discouraged with the faults and the failures of the people around him, in, in, in our church specifically, he wasn't interested in trying to make it better. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't engage him in conversations about how to shore up those weaknesses. He just wanted an audience to listen to him criticize. 
I don't know if he wanted people to agree with him or I, or, or, or I, but, the, but the thing about an armchair quarterback, someone who wants to run the team from the comfort of their barca lounger, it doesn't matter how right they are. Eventually, people get tired of hearing a critic. What's, what's the definition of a fanatic? Someone who can't change their mind and won't change the subject? The 10 years I was on staff, this, this brother would, would, you know, every few months, he'd start up with a, with a new person. Oh, new intern, fresh meat. <laughs> or, or, you know, sometimes it was a mature couple that was, that was new to the church. But, but he, he, he'd, he'd find a new audience and trying to engage them on all of the shortcomings of the leadership and the people and the pastors. And Do you really think a church should be this big? That was, that was one of his, his, his favorites. Because at, at the time, the church was, I don't know, three or 4,000. I don't know if a church should be this big, but, but we're this big. What, what should we do? Should we talk about splitting? Be, because a, a, Bill Gallatin, one of the first guys who went out from Pastor Chuck, planted up in, in northern New York, and just philosophically, every time his church hit two or 300 people, he'd split the church. And, and instead of a church of 200, you'd have two churches of 100. And then they'd grow and then you'd have four churches of 100 or, or eight churches of 50. There's no megachurch in upstate New York, but there's lots of little Calvary scattered around. Should we do that? Should we think about that? Should we think about being more intentional with discipleship? I mean, theoretically, discipleship should be scalable, right? You know, uh, the, the pastor with, you know, a half a dozen or so guys and each of them with, you know, three, four, five guys and each of them with three, you know... I, I don't know of a megachurch that's pulled it off, but hey, maybe we can, we, maybe we can crack that code. Now, I just I think it was a mistake to, to get this big in the first place. Okay. Well, unless you've invented time travel. <laughs> well, would you have let it get this big? I wasn't here. <laughs> and I don't think the people who were here had this design. Let's, let's have this megachurch in the middle. Why? Why are we having this conversation if we're not willing to get real about where we go from here? Because here's where we are. Eventually, I finally just had to say, dude, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm about building up, not tearing down. And, and if, this, if this is where God has called you, then you should be too. And if you're not, then maybe this isn't where God has called you. But don't complain about a leaky roof to the people who are swinging hammers. <laughs> Either pick up a hammer or find a church with a roof that doesn't leak. If you can. <laughs> and, and, and the reason I say all of this is to, is, is, is to say this. The thing about a critical spirit, because that's what Marcus had. When you become consumed with the shortcomings of the people around you, those shortcomings will consume you. When people's faults and failures are all you see and all that you want to talk about, eventually something has to give. It's not a sustainable place. Uh, and and, and uh, you know, eventually, for a lot of people, it's, well, I need to find another church. I'm going to go look for a church with a roof that doesn't leak. Find one that isn't broken like this. But sometimes it's more. And for Marcus, it was more. And for him, it didn't stop at the church. He left the church, but he left all of his friends, he left his wife of 40 years, and he left Jesus. I, 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 I tried to get in touch with him last week. No one knows where to find him. He was, last, last they knew, he was living with, it. when he walked away, he walked away. 
let's put it that way. How did Paul avoid that? Because Paul was more qualified than anyone except Jesus to evaluate a church's weaknesses. And Paul, we know, didn't hesitate to call out sin or shortcoming when when he saw it. He went face-to-face, toe-to-toe with Peter. How did Paul avoid becoming preoccupied with the flaws of the church and the people that he loved? How did he keep from, from, from letting those flaws get so big that he couldn't see anything else? He kept his eyes on God. He didn't, he didn't magically forget all of his hopes and plans. You know, scattered all through the prison epistles are, are, are things like, when I see you, I hope to see you. I expect to see you. You know, he, he, the vision he had for missions and ministry, it didn't just poof, disappear, it didn't vanish from his mind. He held on to it. He treasured it. And he wasn't oblivious either. He didn't just pretend to not see problems. He didn't put on rainbow-colored glasses and, and everything is rainbows and unicorns. No, he's writing to all three of these churches in part to exhort them to shore up their ministries. He's well aware, as, as, as aware as you can be from hundreds of miles away, he's aware of the, what the weaknesses are of the people that he's writing to and, 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 and what those weaknesses could turn into if they're not addressed. But that's not his focus. That's not his fixation. He's not obsessed with the failure of past dreams or the faults of present reality. His, his eyes aren't on all of the good ministry that wasn't happening and all of the bad ministry that was happening, his eyes were on God. Ephesians 3.1, he says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Not a prisoner of Rome, not a prisoner of Nero, not a prisoner of my circumstances, not a prisoner of fate. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Living in the place that Jesus brought me. With the people and the problems that Jesus brought me to to do the ministry that Jesus prepared for me here. Can we say the same thing this morning? You know, another person on my list of people to be grateful for is my driver's ed instructor. I have no hope of it. I have no idea who it was. I have no hope of tracking him down, but I'm grateful. Because I didn't realize when he was teaching me to drive, he was also teaching me about life. One of the most important things that anybody has ever taught me ever, he said, you stare into the ditch, you're going to drive into the ditch. And if you stare at the headlights, you're going to drift into oncoming traffic. We drive toward what we're focused on. Paul knew better than to keep driving to an obsolete vision that clearly was never going to, clearly wasn't going to be, wasn't going to manifest. I've let go of what's past, he says in Philippians 3.13. I've released it. I, I, can't, I can't be anchored to it. I can't let it tie me down. I can't let it hold me back. I've, I've let go of what's past. And I know better than to obsess on all of the ways that, that the present ministry that I see falls short. Because he wasn't living for ministry. He was living for Jesus. He was living to make Jesus known. He was living To know Jesus, he was living to become more like Jesus. His eyes were on him. And as we make our way through Ephesians, we said that today was an introduction to Ephesians. That's it. In this book, Paul is going to tell us how to do that. How broken people coming from broken lives 
sojourning in this broken world together with a broken church family can know Christ more and resemble him more. That's what this book is about. Literally every verse is about one or both of those things. Knowing Jesus, becoming like Jesus. And we, and we all need that. We all need to hear it. We all need to walk it out. Knowing Jesus, becoming more like Jesus, wherever we've been led by Jesus. Wherever we've been put by Jesus. Whoever's been put there with us. Whatever intrudes into this place, that's the prize, Paul says, for all of us. That's our life's work. Funny thing about this letter, it's written to us. Yeah, Patrick, all of Scripture is written to us. Yes. Romans 15, 4, those things were written, were written for our learning. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Yes. But more than that. Go back to the opening words. Go back to the very first verse. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. The oldest manuscripts we have don't have the phrase in Ephesus. What they say is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. How did Ephesus get into the picture? The speculation is that the letter was sent to Ephesus with the intention that it would be circulated from Ephesus to all of the churches around Ephesus, to the churches that were planted from Ephesus, Smyrna and Troas and Laodicea and the rest. What's the point? The point is at the beginning we said that Paul's letters were organized into two categories. Letters to specific churches, like the church in Rome, the church in Corinth, and then you have letters to specific people, like Timothy and Titus and Philemon. This one doesn't really fit either category. It's not written to a specific church. It's written to the church. It's written to us. And, 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 and it's written to say to the church, to the people who have been hurt by life and, and disappointed by the body of Christ, to people who have been disappointed by life and hurt by the body of Christ, Ephesians 1 verse 1, we are who we are, how? By the will of God. We are where we are by the will of God. Let's be who we are, who God intends us to be, who he made us to be, who he's allowing and empowering us to be. Let's, let's be that by the will of God and not let past disappointments or present frustrations crowd him out. And instead of being disappointed about the past or frustrated about the present, let's just be faithful, verse 1. Let's be faithful to who he is and who he's calling us to be in the place that we are, and let's let that be enough. Faithfully following after Jesus Christ, resting in the peace that we have in him, verse 2. Resting in the peace that we have in him through the grace that we have from him. Wherever you're at this morning, whatever circumstances or situation or people are, are, are crowding your mind and burdening your heart, please understand, God didn't bring you to that intersection of, of place and time and circumstances to disappoint you. That's not his heart. That's not his goal. 
wherever you're at in this world, he brought you to the place that you are to delight you, to meet you, to indwell you and overflow you and overjoy you, to love you and to love other people through you. And, and if that's not you this morning, and, and it's, it's not always any of us, let's be honest. But if it's not you right now, maybe take time this week to get to that place. That place of knowing God and allowing him to work to make you more like him. And, and the way to get there isn't to compare where you are to where you wanted to be. And the way to get there isn't to stare at where you are and complain about it and find fault with it. The way to get there isn't to compare or to stare. It's simply to listen. God, here we are. You and me, together. You brought me to this place. What are we going to do together? Father, thank you for the encouragement of your word. Thank you for the ways that you reveal to us and remind us of what's true and that this world is not all there is. Thank you that the, the brokenness, the sadness, the sorrow, these momentary light afflictions are exactly that. And they can't compare to the joy and to the glory that's waiting. But Lord, Lord even, as we, even as we sojourn through sadness and darkness and all of the things that make this world what it is, all of the sin, the very real wickedness, Lord, thank you that you're here with us. Thank you that you've promised not to abandon us. You'll never forsake us. And the things that you allow, the things that happen, you will redeem. You waste nothing. Here we are, Lord, and you're here with us. Open our eyes. Make room in our hearts for everything that you have here for us.